John chapter 10, our passage is 14 to 16, one flock with one shepherd. We'll start at verse 1 and continue in the context, 1 to 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd is not who is not the owner of the sheep beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep which are not of this fold I must bring them also and they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock with one shepherd for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again no one has taken it away from me but I lay it down on my own initiative I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. There arose a division again among the Jews because of these words, and many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your word will be meaningful to us, that we will understand it, and we'll believe it and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in this section of John chapter 10, 14 to 16, one flock with one shepherd. Christ, in this passage, he reiterates a couple of points in this passage 14 to 16 that we've already seen and actually what we will see in the next message in verses 17 and 18. Let's review the context again. In John 9, 1 to 10, 21. John 9, 1 to 10, 21. We have the blind man, then the blind man's healing, the blind man's faith, all in the hearing of and in the presence of 
mostly in the presence of the Pharisees and his parents. And then the aftermath of that, what the Pharisees think of it, what his parents think of it, what the blind man continues to believe. And now in the presence of the Pharisees and the disciples and blind man, since we see in chapter 9, 35 to 41, the blind man is standing there and the Pharisees are standing there and the disciples of Christ are standing there. And Jesus continues his discourse into chapter 10, this discourse on the good shepherd. This continues until 10, 20, uh, 10, 19 to 21. The Jews, because of these words, have contention, division among them. That means they heard those words. And they, some of them claim he has a demon and is insane. And others say, how could this be? A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? All right, that's our context. Well, in this context, in the hearing of his enemies, Jesus continues his thoughts in verses 14 to 16. His enemies are hearing these words. 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. I am the good shepherd. He already said that in verse 11. He stresses this point so that the enemies, the wolves in sheep's clothing, who are standing there, might understand what he actually is claiming about himself. They must make a choice on whether Jesus is speaking the truth or not. They must believe his words or not, since he asserts of himself that he is the good shepherd. Don't miss this irony here. The irony that Jesus could say this about himself, but we can't say that about ourselves, not typically. When we need to defend ourselves, we could do so. When Jesus had to defend himself, he did so. And he called himself a good shepherd. He's saying this to his enemies, that he's the good shepherd. We saw from last time that this means he is claiming deity, a divine nature. Since it says in Psalm 23:1, the Lord is my shepherd. Since it says in Psalm 80, verse 1, O shepherd of Israel, meaning the Lord, shepherd of Israel. We also note that Christ himself was prophesied in the Old Testament to have deity, to be this good Shepherd. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. After condemning and denouncing the false shepherds in verses 1 to 4, Jeremiah 23, 1 to 4, a denunciation of the false shepherds. Then in verses 5 and 6, Christ is mentioned. And the implication is, He is the good shepherd. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. 
the righteous branch of David. King, act wisely, do justice and righteousness. He brings salvation. He brings security. And what's his name? Not only is he called righteous branch, he's called in verse 6, the Lord our righteousness. Same word Lord that we find in Psalm 23.1 and in Psalm 80. The same Lord. Christ is claiming to be the good shepherd. A divine, messianic, Christological good shepherd. They must believe in him as the true and good shepherd. He is the one. Further, he says in verse 14, I know my own and my own know me. I know my own and my own know me. How does he know his own? Chapter 10, verse 3 He knows his own by name. By name, he knows them. In chapter 10, verse 3, he also knows his own by number. He knows his own by number because he leads them out. If he leads them out, the custom, even in the Old Testament, was for the shepherd to to count them as they are going out of their pen or into their pen to count them. He knows every single one of them and leads them out. He would be an irresponsible and derelict of a shepherd if he forgot one in the field or forgot one in the pen. He knows them all. He leads them out. Knows them by name and he leads them out. He also has knowledge of them. I know my own in that he has knowledge of them. He knows their ways. He knows their tendencies. He knows their proclivities. He knows who they are. He has personal, intimate knowledge of them, just as God does of of us. He has it in that way. He further has concern. His concern is to protect them from the wolves. The good shepherd protects the sheep from the wolves, from the robbers, from the thieves, from those who enter into the fold of the sheep by some other way. The strangers who have nothing to do with the flock owned by the shepherd. So he has concern. He has love and concern for them. We also note, we'll say it more in verse 15, he has concern in that he has love for them that he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd and his under-shepherds who understand this imitate, emulate their master, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. False shepherds don't have this concern for name, for number, not number in the false sense, boasting of statistics and attendance and baptisms and church size and church budgets, not number in that sense, but number in the sense of being mindful of who is a sheep and making sure to take care of those sheep, to take care of them the way Jesus, the good shepherd, would take care of them. 
False shepherds don't do that. False pastors don't do that. But true ones are concerned. Furthermore, it says, my own know me. My own know me. The knowledge goes both ways. He knows us and we know him. We know him. In what way do we know him? We know him in saving knowledge. In saving knowledge. In this passage, the saving knowledge is knowledge of his voice. Right? In verses 4 and 5, the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse 5, and a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. They have this saving knowledge of the gospel and who really cares, who really loves their soul. They have that saving knowledge. They have a desire only for Christ. They won't listen to the strangers. They will only listen to Christ. They love His gospel. They want to hear and know His gospel. They want to know and love His word. They love His word found in Scripture. They love His people. They want to be with like-minded ones. Sheep don't want to hang around with wolves and foxes, right? They want to be with other sheep. Therefore, they love his people. And there is no public shame. Meaning that when the sheep are in one flock gathered together, they are happy to identify with Christ. They are happy, in today's expression, to self-identify. Well, why don't we self-identify as bold and courageous Christians, and it doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. It doesn't matter. As long as Christ is pleased with us, we identify with Christ. He's not ashamed to call us brethren, right? Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 in verses 9 to 18. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Why are we ashamed to call him brother or eldest brother? We shouldn't be. He belongs to us, we belong to Him. In these ways, in these ways, we know Him. And we must continue to hear His voice and know Him in these ways. He then says in 15, Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. The Father knows me, and I know the Father. This is the kind of intimacy, this is the kind of knowledge that Christ is granting to us. The Father, Son, and Spirit are granting to us. The Father and the Son have this kind of unbreakable bond of love between them, of knowledge between them, and as finite creatures as we are, sinful creatures as we are, God has made the way for us to enter into that divine relationship. Not to obtain divinity, as heretics teach, but to attain to the holiness that we need to fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In that sense, 
we enter into that knowledge and relationship with the Father. This is a very important bond that God has granted to us by grace to enter into that relationship. John 1, 1. Let's see how John describes this bond of love and knowledge between the Father and the Son and the Spirit even, to which we enter. We enter into that relationship. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. This is personal, and this is relational, was with God. John 1.18, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who was in the bosom, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. It describes Christ as being in the bosom of the Father. Well, who resides in the bosom of another? Usually, this is a language of the intimate relationship of husband and wife, or of child and parent. And even, such as in 2 Samuel 12, of a sheep to the shepherd. For example, when Nathan the prophet confronted David the king on his sins, he announced the parable and said that there was a wayfarer and he came into the house and then the owner of the house, he was the one who had a ewe lamb, right? A ewe lamb that was to him like a daughter that would reside or rest in his bosom, right? The sheep to the shepherd, the same way. The father has this relationship with the son, or the son with the father. The son is in the bosom of the father. That's the unbreakable, loving bond that they, the two of them have, in which we enter. John three, thirty-five. John three, thirty-five. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. If the Father loves the Son and we belong to the Son, the Father loves us. And not only has he given all things into the hands of the Son, as he says, all things have been given to me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, but also, in the age to come, we will reign and rule with Christ. Christ will share this inheritance, eternal inheritance, with us to reign and rule and to enjoy all things forever. John 5, John 5 and verse 20, 520. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. The Father loves the, sh the Son, shows him all things, and greater works will the Son perform that we might marvel. 
John chapter 15. John 15, 9 to 11. John 15, 9 to 11. More on our relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. John 15, 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. That's the kind of love Christ has demonstrated on our behalf. And now he says, abide in my love. Maintain it. Remain in that love. That love, where we have been introduced, we should not ever leave it or abandon that. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love of God, our love of God, is not ever devoid of keeping his commandments. In fact, the way we remain in the love of God is to keep his commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. When we truly know Christ, the love of Christ, and we love Christ, we will keep his commandments. John 14, 15 If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. One more. John 17. John 17. The inner workings of this relationship between Father, Son, Spirit, and and us, we who are redeemed. John seventeen twenty two. John seventeen twenty two. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, Yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known to them, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is a a very complicated prayer. But if you understand what he's saying, the love that the Father has demonstrated in the Son, 
The Son and the Father have, have given that love to us. We enter into that relationship, that loving relationship, perfected in unity. We are one, and we behold the glory of Christ for all eternity. That's the relationship we have. He knows us, we know Him. And this true knowledge of Him, what does it do? It promotes unity, perfects unity. We become one flock with one shepherd. One flock with one shepherd. This one flock, one shepherd, true knowledge of the Father and the Son, and this reciprocal knowledge we have from God to us and us to Him, this is what makes us one flock with one shepherd. It's not founded on falsehood. It's not founded on false doctrine, on heresy. Unity in the Bible is only true unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 1-6. It's only that which is founded on the truth of Christ and true knowledge of Christ, the true loving knowledge of Christ that we have with one another. Verse 15 further says, And I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. We saw this last time. Let's reiterate a couple of points here. In 10.15, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. In 10.11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In 17 to 18, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. 1513. 1513. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. This is the way that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. He laid down his life for us. The us, the sheep, have to do with the elect among Jews and Gentiles brought into one fold that they might have one shepherd. He laid down his life for the sheep. That's what he accomplished on our behalf. This is further explained in Hebrews 9. Let's see the benefit that he accomplished on our behalf. What he did for our redemption. It was necessary to show his concern and love for us in this way. It is central to understanding his death. Hebrews 9, 11-14. 9-11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, 
not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The animals could not do it. The animals could not cleanse us. It's the blood of Christ offered through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit. Unblemished, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, verse 14. That is what cleanses our conscience, our guilty conscience, our pricked conscience because of our sin. From dead works, Works that will not produce fruit, will not produce eternal life. They are dead works. And now, what he has accomplished by laying down his life for us, we are able to serve the living God. Only then. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. For the law. Since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Bulls and goats and sheep, the sacrifices of animals and grain, could never take away sin. Impossible, he says. If it did... If it did have value to remove our sins, and we don't need to believe that Jesus laid down his life for us, then why is it that they are offered continually year by year? Why are they offered continually year by year? Because if the animal's death on a particular occasion, on a single occasion, suffices for my redemption, why do I have to continually... Offer up animals. If my conscience has been cleansed, my guilt has been removed, why the animals? The constant offering of animals. The answer, it was never intended for the animals to pay for sin. The Jews, particularly the Pharisees, should have known this. They should have known this. They were the teachers of Israel, and they should have known these things. As Jesus said to one Pharisee, Nicodemus, in John 3, they should have known it. Chapter 10, verse 10. What further should they have known? Chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 10, 10, 10 to 12. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
once means one time for all. And every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for all time. The body of Jesus Christ had to be laid down to pay for the sins of the sheep. It had to happen. There is no other way. Not a single offering of an animal, of grain, the praise of the lips, attendance at the temple, attendance at the synagogue, knowledge of the word of God, a good deed, faithfulness to one's family, faithfulness to one's society, faithfulness to one's country, dying on the battlefield for one's country, nothing, nothing suffices for our salvation. There is no payment like the payment of Christ. They refused to know, to understand, to believe in why Jesus died on the cross, why he actually came. They refused that. They wanted to have nothing to do with that. They rather boasted in their own righteousness. Who then, we've been saying sheep, who then are these sheep and how do they become sheep? Who are they sheep? Who are the sheep and how do they become sheep? Verse 16 tells us, John 10, 16 How do they become sheep and who are they? 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. One flock with one shepherd. There are two key phrases on how they actually become sheep. They become sheep, it says in verse 16, I have other sheep. Verse 16, I must bring them also. They shall hear my voice, and he will be their shepherd, one shepherd. It happens by the will of God, not by the will of man. This is teaching sovereignty of God, predestination, This is teaching preordination before the foundation of the world that God chose to call His redeemed ones, the ones He intended to redeem in time and space, eventually in the world and eventually in the individual's personal life, whether at age 10 or 50 or 90 before His last breath. Not in the life to come, but in this life. Whether at age 10, 50, or 90, if he's going to save someone, he will save him because I have other sheep. He's talking about those who are elsewhere who have not yet believed. He's talking about them as being his in ownership. They belong to him, his possession. And when they are preordained, when they are like this, 
they will believe. Eventually, they will believe. They will have faith and believe. These other sheep who are not of his fold, he already owns them. This concept of predestination, election, preordination, is explained in John 6, 37. From the lips of Christ Jesus himself. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All. Who are these all? Are these all every person who ever lives? Every person ever conceived? Who are these all? In verse 37, he qualifies all that the Father gives me. That means that the Father isn't giving all. If many people perish, if many people are thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, they are not included in this word all of verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. They shall believe in me. Coming means believing according to John according to John 6:35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. If they are given to Christ from the Father, they will believe in Christ and he'll raise them up on the last day. He will never cast them out. John 6, 39, 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. All that the Father has given by his will, Christ loses nothing. He won't lose a single sheep. He won't lose that one. He will raise it up on the last day. That's what God's will is. All that He has given. 6.44 to 45. No one can come to me. In other words, no one can believe in me. No one can. Because we are corrupt, totally depraved, totally unable. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The way in which we are able to come is if the Father draws. Well, what does it mean for the Father to draw? 45 says, they shall be taught of God, as the prophets of the Old Testament said. And what does it mean to be taught of God? What does it mean to be drawn to God? Verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is what Jesus means in John 10, 16. I have, I must bring them also. I have... They belong to me. I must bring them also. This is the way they are brought. They are brought like this. John 10, 26. John 10, 26. 
He makes a distinction to his audience. In John 10, 26, he says, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If they were of his sheep, they would come to him. They would believe in him. He categorically excludes them from this group of sheep. He says, you're not that way because you, he says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If you did belong to me, if you were a part of my sheep, I have sheep, I have other sheep. If you were a part of that, you would believe. But you're not a part of that, that's why you don't believe. It hinges on whether one is a sheep, whether one believes. It does not hinge on faith or belief, it hinges on whether one is a sheep. Clearly that. That's what Jesus meant. This is the way it happens. But we also must ask, who are the other sheep? Not of this fold. Who are the them? I must bring them also. And they, who are these they, shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Who are they? Who are they? Jesus uh, undoubtedly, clearly believed and taught that these people are Gentiles. The other sheep are Gentiles. Indisputably Gentiles. So, Jews and Gentiles. If he says other sheep, not of this fold, and he must bring them, and they must hear his voice, they shall hear his voice, and become one flock with one shepherd, it means that they are not there yet. Correct? Some of the Jews, a few of the Jews, a remnant of the Jews, had believed in Christ. For example, 11 out of 12 of the apostles were sheep and they believed truly in Christ. 11 out of the 12, except Judas Iscariot. Jesus had 70 disciples that he commissioned to, to preach the gospel. In Luke chapters 9 and 10, we hear of him commissioning disciples and at one point, 70 disciples to go and preach. At another point, waiting for the day of Pentecost, we read of 120 disciples praying in the upper room, awaiting the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. So forth. So those were Jews. Those were Jews who had believed. They were already of his sheep. We should also include those Jews who were already dead and a part of the sheep. Who would those Jews be? If we are using the word Jew in the typical way, we're talking about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before Abraham, or in the days of Noah and from Adam to Noah, nobody was called a Jew or nobody was called a Hebrew. That took place later. But we could include non-Jews, if we want to use that category, non-Jews, 
Adam, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. At least them, Adam, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Before there was any concept and distinction between Jew and Gentile or Hebrew and the rest of the nations. We include them as a part of the sheep because they were believers. We can also include later who? Moses, David, and Isaiah, and the rest of the prophets. Correct? We include them. We also include certain godly women. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah, Abigail, right? Manoah's wife. We include other godly women like that throughout the Old Testament. They were a part of the sheep. They are a part of the sheep. And one day, all of us will experience for all eternity one shepherd conducting, leading one flock throughout all eternity. They are. The Pharisees, though physically in their bloodline, though in their genealogy, they were Jews, they were goats in terms of salvation. They were not sheep. And I say it generally speaking. I don't mean no single Pharisee ever believed because it's likely that Nicodemus eventually did believe. And it also says in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 6, book of Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. A great Many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Acts 6, verse 7. So, that's true. But not all Jews, not all Jews, not all descendants of Abraham. Ishmael, no. Esau, no. Ahab and Jezebel, no. And many others in the Old Testament, no, no, no. Not sheep, not saved. Lost, gone forever. In the same way, though, Gentiles. Should the Pharisees have known this about themselves and their heritage? Yes. They refused to know it. Another thing that they refused to know when Jesus and the apostles preached it had to do with the Gentiles, inclusion of the Gentiles. It was clearly announced in many, many Old Testament passages. Many, many Old Testament passages, this inclusion of the Gentiles. Let's look at three or four examples. The first example we take from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 56, 6 to 8. Isaiah 56, 6 to 8. Also the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord to be His servants... Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. For all the peoples or all the nations. This verse is quoted in Matthew 21, 13. 21, 13. 
my house a house of prayer for all the peoples. How will that happen then? Verse 8, Isaiah 56, 8. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. God is going to gather. I must bring them also. I must bring... God will be the gatherer of what? The dispersed of Israel. The dispersed of Israel. This honorable name Israel is applied not only to those already gathered, but to those who will be gathered and brought into one people, one flock with one shepherd. Isaiah preached that in Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 8. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 4, our second example of this, preached in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 4, 1. If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And if you will put away your detested things from my presence and will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. If physical Israel obeys the Lord, believes in the Lord, repents of sin, and they are truthful in their confession. They will be redeemed. And if they are redeemed, then the nations will bless themselves in Him and in Him they will glory. Isn't that how it works? Didn't Elisha the prophet have to preach to Naaman the Aramean, the foreigner? Elisha, a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he had to be a believer to preach the truth to Naaman the foreigner for the Naaman the foreigner to believe, right? Isn't that how it works? Didn't Joshua and the spies have to teach and spread the truth to Rahab and her family? Didn't somebody have to do that to Rahab for Rahab the Canaanitess, a harlotrous woman and a Canaanite come into the family of God? Isn't that how it had to happen? Isn't that how it happened in the early church? The apostles and the Jewish believers, didn't they have to go to other places? To Samaria, to Antioch, to Rome, to other places to preach the gospel for Gentiles to believe? That's what Jeremiah is saying. And Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Psalm 100 wraps this up in a nice package. Psalm 100, verse 1. Psalm 100, verse 1. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us, and we are His. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgivings and his 
at thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. It's calling on all the earth, which includes everyone else, not just the Jews. And all of us are called to worship him, to acknowledge him as God, verse 3. Acknowledge that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We are his past, uh, sheep of his pasture. Jews and Gentiles belong to him in this way. He is our shepherd. And Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Isn't that verse 5? The Lord is good. So as one people or one flock, we have one shepherd and we ought to worship him that way. This would have been entirely offensive to the Pharisees. This is entirely offensive to all unbelievers. It's offensive to the flesh to think of the people of God like this, that the people of God are one flock with one shepherd, whether local flock or universal flock, the universal church or the local church. The flesh and all unbelief hates this doctrine. Jews in the flesh hate Gentiles. Gentiles hate Jews. Gentiles hate one another. Even Jews hate one another when the Jew is doing what's right. Isn't that what happens in our world? The rich hate the poor, the poor hate the rich. Males hate females, females hate males. Uh, parents hate their children, children hate their parents. The world knows this, and they aggravate it. They exacerbate these hatred, the, the hatred of this sort, and foment rebellion and chaos and misery among us. They even do it in churches. They especially want to do it in churches because in church we have a higher authority. We have the word of Christ. And they hate the word of Christ because it is the ultimate authority coming from God himself in heaven. They don't want anything to do with it, so they will cause contention. You're not like me. Therefore, I don't like you. I don't want to be around you. Or they let the strangers, the wolves, the robbers and the thieves, the false prophets and the false teachers foment rebellion and undermine the word of God to produce havoc in churches, in families, and in society. It happens everywhere. But we can't be that way. Any church, any pastor, any theologian, any scholar, doesn't matter who he is, who does this is one of the wolves in sheep's clothing, if he's in the church. A ravenous wolf in sheep's clothing. We can't have anything to do with it. We must have one mind. One mind because we are one flock with one shepherd. Our ultimate allegiance, our first ultimate allegiance is to Christ. After all, he's the one who loved us by laying down his life 
for us. We know him by hearing his voice. And he teaches us and guides us by his voice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.